Sir Balp and the Team of Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance. It's his weekly Monday appearance, the managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. And what follows as he does every week on the program, Dave Cameron endeavors this week to analyze all baseball. Of particular note, we find Dave Cameron performing acts of violence on an equine carcass, which is to say he's beating a dead horse. The horse in question, opt-outs. Opt-outs that free agents are receiving. David Price, Jason Hayward, and most recently Johnny Cueto have all received opt-outs. There seems to be a range of opinions regarding the utility of these, not so much for the players because the benefits to them are obvious, uh, but to the teams, what the advantages might be for the teams. Dave Cameron discusses this uh, in particular with regard to some comments that Rob Nyer made at uh, MLB on Fox. Friend of the program, Rob Nyer, it should be said. Also addressed in this edition of the podcast, the Todd Frazier trade, which saw him move from Cincinnati to Chicago. He remains in the Midwest. A host of prospects do not as they go uh, well, maybe some of them do, but a bunch of them ended up in Los Angeles, and others moved from Los Angeles to the Midwest, so their property values will be lower, but also so will their cost of living, one notes. And then uh, finally, there's uh, some questions. Oh, the uh, this the ripple effects we're still feeling here of um, Atlanta's trader Shelby Miller to Arizona and the servant of prospects, which went the other way. We also find Dave Cameron making predictions about the quality of the program even before it begins. There's just you know, lots of reasons to think this won't go very well. Amusing stuff, that. Amusing stuff, Dave Cameron. Uh, before uh, speak <clears throat> On the topic of amusing, uh, in particular amusing oneself, have you considered daily fantasy sports games? And I'm not talking about uh, DraftKings or FanDuel. Of course, those are daily fantasy sports games. But I would like to direct your attention in return uh, for the money that uh, we're receiving from the sponsor to Draft and the Draft app. It's, it's unique in that it is the first... Such game that is a daily fantasy sports game designed for mobile devices. Designed truly for mobile devices. Here's how you play. You download the app. You find an opponent within the draft universe. This could be a friend of yours. It could also be an internet stranger. You engage in a snake draft. Each select five players. Those players play in games. They accrue fantasy points. And whichever you or your opponent has accrued the most fantasy points, this is the winner. This is the winner. It's possible uh, that you, because you're daring and you live in uh, one of the states in which it's legal, uh, it's possible that you've wagered some American currency on it, and in return for winning, uh, you will be in receipt of a certain number of dollars minus the vigorish. That's how it works. And of course, it's not uh, it's not merely baseball to which to which draft and the draft app are confined. It's also one can also compete in, for example, uh, college or professional football, and there's also uh, professional basketball and hockey. Those are the other sports in which one could participate. Now you are interested. You are deeply interested in this game, and here's how to play. If you have an Apple device, which has the iOS operating system, uh, get the to the app store, the app store. Also, furthermore, if you have an Android device, then you should go to Google Play or something like Google Play. It's Draft. It's Draft app. It's Draft. The Draft app. It's Draft. It's Draft app. You can download it. That is the message from our sponsor. Here is a message from Carson Sestouli. What you're about to listen to is Fangraphs Audio featuring Dave Cameron and beginning, beginning, I tell you, right now. Today in the pages of Fangraphs, however, you were uh, you were beating a dead horse, a, ho- yeah. a horse that was already dead. You've uh, beaten it. I mean, if you're going to beat a horse, better to beat a dead one than a live one, That's right? That's probably a good point, right? Oh. Yeah, the live one, you may not know this, but uh, if you're beating a live one, Frederick Nietzsche will come out and 
I don't know, have words with you. <laughs> well, I wouldn't want a uh, zombie... Uh, <laughs> zombie Frederick uh, Nietzsche? Yeah, come after me, that would be weird. I'd rather just beat a dead horse. Okay, so listen. It's about opt-outs. And the reason you're discussing it, it well, it's what, uh, let's say it's twofold. Uh, or it has at least two folds in it. One of them... Uh, one of the folds is that a number of uh, players of later, more perhaps than we're accustomed to seeing, certainly high-profile free agents have received contracts with opt-outs in them. Yeah. Uh, David Price, David Price is one of them. Uh, Jason Hayward, recipient of a of a double opt-out. Yeah, two opt-outs. Two opt-outs, right? Yeah. And of course, Zach Greinke, who's just signed with the Arizona Diamondbacks, was able to do so because of an opt-out in his contract with the Dodgers. So that's right. one fold. A second fold is a. Uh, um, I think in part it's been a re- it's a response to uh, some comments uh, Rob Nyer, friend of friend of the program Rob Nyer, was making. Um, and, and his and his comments were in response to something Rob Manfred, the commissioner of baseball, said. So. Okay, yeah. So first of all, would you catch us up to date, just uh, briefly, Manfred Nyer, and then we'll get to Dave Cameron. So Manfred, I think, was asked about them, and Ken Rosenthal had a uh, Q&A with him or an interview with him uh, published on Fox Sports last week, and Manfred basically said he didn't see the logic in opt-outs from a team's perspective, uh, and he didn't really uh, – he wished teams weren't giving them because he, he looks at it and says, look, if the player plays well – then he hits the market again in a few years and gets a big raise or you lose the player. So you either, you know, you have to pay him more money or you lose the end of his contract. Uh, and if he plays poorly, then you're saddled with the, the entire deal. So, uh, you know, it's kind of a lose-lose for the team. You either have to, like, give him a raise after a few, few number of good years uh, or you lose the player or, you know, if the opt-out uh, isn't used, that means that the contract was a disaster and that you wish you wouldn't have signed it. So uh, the Manfred's take was that these are bad for the teams and he wished teams weren't handing them out. Oh, wait, Nyer- can I ask you a question, there, yeah. just a philosophical one? Is the stated duty of the commissioner to represent the teams? Is that yes. the Okay, all right. It hasn't always been that way, but it is now. All right, all right. So wait, like, um, what is like his... I mean, the commissioner, uh, I understand, is the person who's in charge of things. What, what, and, and you say it hasn't always been like that. Was there something actually written down somewhere that suggested that that is now his duty? Or is it just a sort of uh, cultural shift? Uh, I don't know if there's, like, an actual, like, uh, document that states, like, this guy works for the team. But Rob Manfred was uh, elected as to succeed Bud, Signer, Bud Selig uh, by a vote of the team owners. Like, they were the ones who had to put him in power. Um, and he essentially... Uh, works at their behest, yeah. uh, and he negotiates on their behalf, and he's in charge of the league, and the league is made up of essentially 30 stakeholders, uh, where, you know, each team has some, uh, percentage, uh, interest in the league's overall, uh, long-term viability, and Manfred is working on their behalf to, to maintain that the, uh, like the league's long-term popularity and growth. Right. So if they're, so his opinion is, these teams are giving out the contracts. I don't particularly care for it. Because um, my job is to, you know, essentially protect the teams, and this seem, they seem to be exposing themselves to uh, to risk here. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any question. Teams are taking on more risk uh, by including opt-out clauses in the deals, and uh, they're essentially allowing more players to hit open market valuations uh, more frequently, right? So if you don't include opt-out clauses, all the free agents who sign deals that turn out to be bad, which are most of them, uh, won't use the opt-out clauses and they'll just stay under contract and there will be no change. But, you know, the fraction, whatever, 25, 30%, whatever it is, of free agent deals that turn out pretty well for the teams and the players play well, those guys who get opt-out clauses, they're going to get to reset their contracts and get even higher market rate salaries. And so um, essentially what what this kind of trend is doing is pushing more players towards having market rate 
salaries more frequently, and I think that's something that teams are generally against. Right, because the market tends to move in one direction. Probably right. The market's going to pay more uh, than than when a player agrees to a deal um, previously, and then you know kind of outperforms, or the market does really well, or there's inflation or something. Like uh, I think we understand that like deals signed a while ago. As long as the player sustains his success and doesn't have like a significant injury or performance decline, uh, you know, are going to be undervalued relative to what the market is paying now. Okay. All right. So th- th- this this accounts for um, for Manfred's comments. Now we move on to Dr. Rob Nyer. Mm, is he a doctor? Uh, he's a uh, he's like a like a freelance doctor. You know. Oh. Yeah. I don't think I would go to one of those. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would be like. Hey. I don't think he's a medical doctor. Okay, well, certainly not. Uh, so yeah, so Rob's comments were the same or in the same vein as, uh, what a lot of people have been responding to my comments and, and columns about the opt out that I've written over the last month or so. Um, where I've essentially taken the position and I, I continue to take the position that opt outs are a value to the player. Uh, they are a pre- player benefit and, and not a team benefit. A lot of people, including Rob, argue that they can be a team benefit. And I think in Rob's piece today, he's actually said, like, they can be very, very good for the wealthy teams uh, because they can sign these, you know, elite players to seven- or eight-year deals and then let them go after three years and get all of the good performance ahead of time and none of the risk. And I I just disagree with that sentiment. Okay, you disagree with the sentiment. And and, and that's, that's where I think we should start. One of the – all right, so one question I have is, and I think it – I think it's it's important to understanding the opt-outs or their potential value to players and or teams is are these contracts do these contracts tend to be front loaded uh so historically now uh actually what teams have previously wanted to do we see this most commonly or most maybe uh egregiously with the Giancarlo Stanton deal is you heavily backload a a, a deal that contains an opt-out in order to make it more difficult for the player to walk away from uh, te- years that would have value to the player. So Stanton got a 13-year, $325 million deal from the Marlins, uh, but it's six and 105 million before the opt-out, and then like seven, 220 after the opt-out. Um, so by backloading the deal, the Marlins are basically saying, look, we're going to get almost all of our value up front, uh, and then if you decide to leave, uh, that's okay. We've already, uh, you know, kind of, we'll, we'll take six 105 as like we got our value in this deal. Uh, if you opt out of 7220, well, no, we're not going to be too broken up about it. Uh, I think what players have done more frequently in this offseason is move away from that. So Jason Hayward got a front-loaded deal before the opt-out. Uh, I think he got $26 million per season before the opt-out, and then it drops down to like $21 million per year after the opt-out. Uh, Johnny Cueto, I think, got $23 million a year before the opt-out, and then it drops down to $20 million a year after the opt-out. So with a little bit more leverage in free agency, um, the free agents who are getting opt-outs this winter are uh, asking for money up front uh, rather than uh, push back behind the opt-out. Right. And so one of the uh, for teams that have wanted to sign star players, uh, players who are going to make a lot of money, uh, are going to make a lot of money per year on the open market, there there does seem to have been a correlation, correct me if I'm wrong, between a high AAV and then also um, a high uh, a high number of years or a longer commitment. Yeah, right. I mean, this is basically uh, what premium free agents have done over the last, say, decade is instead of inflate the average annual value of their salaries, 
they've inflated the number of years they've gotten. So like they do get more per season than someone else. But you look at like, you know, David Price getting 31 million a year and, and Jordan Zimmerman getting 22 million a year. I think most people would argue like there's a more than $9 million difference, uh, between David Price and, and Jordan Zimmerman. I think we have it as like a two win gap essentially. And, and, uh, you know, $9 million per year for two wins is, is pretty cheap except for the price, the fact that Price got seven years and an opt out and Zimmerman got five. So that's really, uh, elite, elite free agents have decided to price in, um, kind of their, their value in terms of getting extra years at the end of deals or now opt outs or both, uh, where, you know, mid-level players are getting, uh, you know, shorter contracts, but, you know, at a higher percentage of the top line annual average value, uh, than you'd expect based on their contribution percentage relative to the top players. Okay. All right. Well, the, the reason I asked before about the, the front-loaded versus back-loaded is, uh, it seems as though if a team, a team can essentially make the contract, um, and, and you just said it, this would also benefit the player too because they get quite a bit of money up front. But a team can protect themselves a little bit, right? If they're saying, well, we don't really want the contract to last seven years, we make it more enticing for the player to opt out if we, if we front load the contract. Is that, is that, is that anything? Is that a reasonable reading? Uh, so yeah, so you can incentivize the player to opt out by giving him more money up front, but you're also making the contract worse for yourself, right? Like, so if you say, uh, I'm gonna give a player, like Hayward's case, right? So it's eight years, uh, and 184 million dollars, uh, and so by moving more of the money up front, he's gonna be faced with an option, uh, to essentially, uh, choose between a five year, 106 million dollar deal or hit free agency again. Because more of the money is up front, it's going to be pretty easy for Jason Hayward most likely to say, 5, 106, like this is barely more than Pablo Sandoval got four years ago. And I'm a lot better than Pablo Sandoval, or presumably will be, uh, unless he declines pretty significantly. Um, and so I think, you know, the, there's a, a very high likelihood that unless he blows out his ACL or something, Jason Hayward is going to take the opt-out. Uh, because the deal is somewhat front-loaded. Um, so I think the Cubs understand that going in. Like, I think from their perspective, they're looking at it and this is saying, like, we're probably only going to get Jason Hayward for three years unless this goes badly and we don't want to have Jason Hayward for eight years and we'll just be stuck with him uh, because he had some kind of significant injury or huge performance decline like Andrew Jones or something. Um, but I don't think if you're a team that's necessarily the outcome you're rooting for, right? Like, you would be better off backloading and saying, uh, you know, I'm going to get three really cheap years, and so, like, maybe you get 360 or something, and you force Hayward to make a decision on, like, 5-122 or 5-124, and then if he opts out, the first three years that you got were even more valuable than the 378 that the Cubs are going to pay him. So I think, like, that's historically what teams have done is say, if you're going to use the opt-out against me in order to try and reset your market value, I'm going to make my pre-opt-out years as valuable as I can be. Okay, all right, all right. But then I guess there's also an attendant risk, right, where if the player, um, you know, faces total attrition, then you're on the, uh, you have quite a bit of um, obligation there financially. Yeah, I mean, you know, in deals like the Josh Hamilton case, which is probably the best example of like, uh, you know, a deal that just went south real fast in re- in recent free agent history, um, the opt-out would have like basically no, uh, uh, it, w- it wouldn't matter. Like Josh Hamilton, if, if given an opt-out in his contract, would just be like, bah, I don't want to use that. I'm getting paid a lot of money, and my open market value is almost nothing. So, um, yeah, in, in deals where uh, the, the contract goes bad, the opt-out basically has no effect. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I'm, just, I'm just trying to understand. We do this sometimes where you're trying to understand the uh, – you give the benefit of the doubt to people with yeah. whom you disagree and attempt to understand it. it, it you said that, that Nairon, you said that others – 
um, have have um, cited that this is of particular benefit, maybe from their point of view, to wealthy teams. Yeah. And I guess that that, that seems uh, interesting to me, which is uh, because there's always this conversation, right? And I think that this came up a lot with the question of Cole Hamels. And, and uh, I think at one point Jeff Sullivan had written a post discussing, you know, a, a hypothetical trade. And uh, there were, uh, of course, the uh, delightful people of uh, Philadelphia um, are one of their uh, virtues is that they're not shy to share uh, about sharing their opinions. Yeah. And when I think that I think at one point was it was it Sullivan who wrote about maybe the the possibility of a Mookie Betts Cole Hamels trade. Uh, I think I wrote about that. I, we, we wrote about Cole Hamels a lot. I think I was the first one maybe uh, a year before Hamels actually got traded to say, like, look, you know, Cole Hamels just isn't worth, worth Mookie Betts. And at that point, Mookie Betts was, uh, you know, had, had like a month of service time in the major leagues yeah. and was a 21-year-old player. And people were outraged to think that, like, some kid who, like, had 100 at-bats in the majors was worth more than an all-star pitcher. Right. And this is – so you you would certainly argue – I know and I know this uh, – that – that the concern for the team, the main concern has to be the um, the wins uh, relative to uh, relative to the expenses, right? The cost of those wins. I mean, yeah. So that, like, that's that has to be a factor. Like the the real the main concern is how you build a championship team. Like that's what you're trying to do. Right. So you don't you're not just trying to like make every move as efficient as possible. You're trying to basically build a puzzle where you can accumulate as many wins as you can afford. Um, but we have to be realistic. Teams have a financial constraint. Every single team has a financial constraint. And so within that constraint, you have to make decisions and say, okay, what's the cost I'm paying if I make this move? And what am I not going to be able to do if I you know, allocate $25 million in salary here? I won't be able to do this other thing. And so you're essentially trying to get as many wins as you possibly can uh, for the amount of money and kind of uh, prospects that you have in order to trade and kind of your your uh, financial assets, uh, how many wins you can accumulate while spending as little of those as possible. Right. And I think that uh, – but this this camp that would, for example, see the some virtue in the opt-out uh, for the team or would see the – or would have disagree with uh, trading away Cole Hamels in exchange for Mookie Betts, especially that – that Mookie Betts, that version of Mookie Betts that had only you know played a month in the majors would say there are only so many players who who can produce. Well, so there's a finite number of slots essentially. You say plate appearances on the one hand, or 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 innings to be pitched on the other, and you can't necess- you can't trade it all away. There are certain players who will just be more efficient in terms of producing wins relative to their plate appearances or their innings. And Cole Hamels is one of those players. Yeah, I mean, so I would say I don't think that the crowd who's going to argue that Cole Hamels had, you know, crazy amounts of value and was worth more than Mookie Betts and, you know, whatever they were asking for the Dodgers or well, anyway, the, those packages that we suggested that Hamels was not worth, um, would be on the same side of the coin arguing that opt-outs are good for teams, right? Because like the, so the argument that the opt-out is good for the team is that the back-end years of something like the David Price deal are going to be a net negative because uh, aging pitchers uh, often uh, perform poorly, and there just aren't that many examples of like 35 or 36-year-old pitchers who are worth $30 million a year. Uh, but I think that to take that position, you essentially have to buy into the idea that a high salary can offset the entire value of having a quality pitcher. And so I think people who would argue, uh, and I could be wrong because I haven't actually heard anyone Say I'm a you know Cole Hamels for Mookie Betts person and a David Price opt out is good for the Red Sox person, but I would think that they would come down on opposite sides of that coin where they would just say 
if they think that, you know, the Red Sox would have been wise to trade bets for Cole Hamels, uh, then they shouldn't care about David Price's salary because they're already making an argument that salary doesn't really matter and you should just acquire the best player possible. Uh, I think the, the, you know, the opt-out being good for the team is based on some acceptance of the idea that salary uh, offsets the performance of a player, even a very good player, uh, which is why people want to get rid of the player uh, by having him opt out and uh, you know be, divest themselves of the, of the risk of the back ends of the deal. Right. But, yeah. I guess there's. I guess I was uh, focusing on this idea about the the advantage for wealthy teams. If you take a hypoth- if you take a, a club right with hypothetically an infinite payroll, they they would that team would have. Would what they would actually just try and acquire all of it'd be like a video game, right? Where you're just like, uh, oh yeah, I just want to get all the best players without regard for contracts. Yeah, I mean, right. If there was like, you know, if a team had a billion dollar payroll or two billion dollar payroll or something, like then you don't care. You you call the Marlins and you're like, hey, look, you know, we'll we'll give you all of our best prospects for uh, Jose Fernandez because we're just gonna go buy every other team's best prospects and we're gonna like do the Tuki Toussaint deal 15 times over. And like, if you had unlimited funds, you would essentially have unlimited talent. You could do whatever you want. Uh, the reality is no team is in that position. And even the Dodgers and Yankees have financial constraints. And that's why we see like the Yankees not signing any players this winter, even though they could use some good players. And there's good players available and there's players who fit their needs. Uh, but even the Yankees with a $200 million payroll have long been like kind of the financial behemoth of Major League Baseball have run into a financial constraint. And I think this is uh, one of the reasons why it's important to look at the, the value of a player's contract and say, you know, is this something a team should do? Because, uh, big long-term deals that go badly do prevent you from doing other things in the future. Right. Oh, yeah, here's another question. Uh, uh, this is, this, we're leaving uh, the, the subject of opt-outs um, for, for the moment, and perhaps forever. Uh, the, you, you wrote a piece last week discussing a, a possible Chris Archer trade for the Dodgers. Is that right? I did, yes. Okay. Craig Edwards followed that up. You know Craig Edwards? He writes I, for Fangraphs? Yeah, I hired him. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so he, uh, he wrote a piece uh, discussing... Uh, 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 proposing a trade in which the Dodgers would send Jock Peterson, outfielder yeah. Jock Peterson, to the Mets in exchange for Matt Harvey. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I assume Jock Peterson at this point is making basically the league minimum. Does that sound he right? Is. Yeah, yeah. And Matt Harvey's making? Well, I think he's arbitration eligible. Okay. All right. It's fine. It's fine. He's, he's, so he's going to make like he's gonna make like four or five million bucks or something. Okay. All right. And – and Jock, so Jock Peterson has more years of team control. Matt Harvey has uh, performed probably more ably recently. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, if recently is like the second half of the season, yeah. Right. Yeah, and he has a, he has a bit more of a major league track record, I guess. For sure. Yeah. One of the advantages, yeah. right? I did notice that when um, whatever you suppose the merits are of you, you personally suppose the merits are of Craig suppose when that was published, uh, there was uh, there was a lot of reaction, and it was most it was almost all from Mets fans. To say, who else are you going to send besides Jock Peterson? Yeah, I think uh, one thing we've historically seen is that teams who have star pitchers tend to think that their star pitchers are worth more in trade than they actually are. And you know, not to go back to the Cole Hamels thing, but like I think every time, like you know, the Marlins with Jose Fernandez, and like any time that there's a deal on the table or a reported deal where some team's going to trade a frontline starting pitcher, they're like, oh, we're going to trade, you know. Uh, you know, Chris Sale or something, and he's like, I'm going to want your, like, 17 best players. And it's like, well, Chris Sale, super valuable, no question. Probably the most valuable pitcher in baseball when you include his contract. Uh, but, you know, there's a reason Chris Sale hasn't been traded. So what do you think that uh, – um, okay, so here's a question. Har- uh, with this, this sort of reaction you saw with regard to Harvey, 
Is there something that happens? Is there like a threshold that a pitcher crosses when he that that you know that creates this sort of uh, it's basically an allegiance or a a, um, a glow around him as as nearly untradeable? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think it's it's interesting when you kind of see how quickly the perception of a fan's base can change about it. Like I, I think of Steven Strasburg, right? Like when he came up and he was like the phenom pitcher of all phenom pitchers, like the Nationals wouldn't have possibly considered trades for Steven Strasburg. Like, this guy is our franchise. Like, uh, he was the greatest pitcher of all time. And he blew out his arm. And uh, then he came back, and they had the whole innings thing. And, the, you know, and then Strasburg was, like, kind of disappointing in, like, uh, the last couple of years in terms of, you know, his uh, ERA relative to his peripherals. Well, the stuff's still very good, and he looks dominant at times, but he also has some uh, outings that aren't so good. And I think... Uh, at this point, you know, the Nationals fans probably would have said, yeah, you know, a couple of years ago we could have, or last year even, if we could have traded Steven Strasburg for Mookie Betts, uh, which is, a, I think, another trade I proposed at the time, or at least con- con- walked through the considerations um, when discussing Mookie Betts' trade value, uh, the Nationals would have come out ahead on that deal. And, like, they would rather have Mookie Betts right now than one year of Steven Strasburg. And so um, I think it's interesting to kind of see – Kind of the evolution of how teams view their pitchers, but it's it's very heavily influenced by recent performance. And Matt Harvey was very good in the postseason, and the Mets went to the World Series. And uh, it's very easy to look at their young rotation and be like, man, these guys are just so good that we're going to be able to go to the World Series every year because our pitchers are amazing. Uh, fast forward six months, you know, one of them is probably going to be hurt, and it might be Matt Harvey. Right. Okay. So partially, this is also being influenced by uh, the recent the recent trade between Arizona and Atlanta, right? Where I think. You know, I mean, justifiably, one sees what the uh, what Atlanta received for one Shelby Miller. Yeah. And uh, you know, if you're a, a human person, and you say, "Well, that's a lot," yeah. uh, and Matt Harvey, uh, you know, on a you know, per any he's basis, better than Shelby Miller. Right? Better than Shelby <laughs> yeah. Miller. Yeah. Uh, you say, "Well, we need to get at least that." But at the same time, that deal seems to be a bit of an outlier, or as you might say, an outlier. Yeah. Because I'm terrible at pronouncing that word. Yeah. Well, yeah. regardless of whether you are or not. No, is I it, am. It, how, how, how is that trade going to affect the actual market, do you suppose? I mean, it's tough. I think any team that thinks that they're going, that the Shelby market, tra- the Shelby Miller trade sets the market for starting pitcher acquisition costs, like no one would ever make a trade again. Because <laughs> 29 other teams in baseball, including one of the two who made the Shelby Miller trade, realizes that trade was insane. Um, and so I think, like, no team in baseball is going to want to redo that deal. And no team in baseball is like, well, ah, this is what pitchers cost now. Like, uh, you know, if that's the going rate for pitchers, pitchers just won't get traded. So uh, I think it's going to take probably a little bit of time, and teams will say, you know, that deal's not on the table. This is the best deal we can get. And I think, you know, like, it's not necessarily a perfect corollary because Todd Frazier is not a pitcher. But we just saw a um, – a comparable value player, I think, in in Todd Frazier to Shelby Miller. He has one less year of team control, but I think Todd Frazier is a better player than Shelby Miller is. So I think like two years of Todd Frazier or three years of Shelby Miller, yeah, roughly the same. Maybe like slight advantage one or the other depending on your needs, whether you need a pitcher or a third baseman or something. But these are like two similarly valuable assets. Uh, Todd Frazier went for way less than Shelby Miller. And I think uh, eventually teams will realize like, ah, the Shelby Miller trade is – um, in the books, and the Diamondbacks made a mistake, and that's just not something we can use as a point of reference anymore. Uh, this is what's available. This is what teams are offering us. If we want to make a trade, we just have to take the best offer on the table and not hope that Dave Stewart's calling online too. Right. So, so those, uh, so anyone 
looking for the Mets to acquire not only Jock Peterson, but also a combination of uh, Urias and Corey Seager. Yeah, no, that's not happening. Probably not. Probably yeah, it's not, not happening. happening. I mean, I think, like, uh, you know, even when I wrote the Chris Archer thing, Chris Archer demonstrably more valuable than Matt Harvey by a lot because it's six years of team control, uh, two of which are team options, so it's only four guaranteed years of, like, almost no money. Uh, even if you pick up the two team options, it's like a total of $38 million over the next six years. Uh, Archer is as good as Harvey or very close to as good as Harvey. Uh, you could, you know, flip a coin on, on which one you'd rather have going forward. Um, so Har- Archer clearly more valuable. And when I suggested that the Dodgers might want to consider including Corey Seager in a Chris Archer trade, Dodgers fans threw a giant fit uh, and said, like, we're not trading Corey Seager. And so I think, uh, you know, that's the kind of player it would take to even get the Dodgers to think about trading Seager. Uh, when it comes to like three years of a guy like Harvey who's already had Tommy John surgery and um, has some health questions, uh, there's no chance that Seager's on the table. Right. Uh, there was You mentioned the, the Todd Frazier trade. He was acquired by the White Sox in a three-team deal uh, that saw... Well, I mean, it saw the White Sox uh, giving away some useful pieces. Maybe, um, potentially useful. Yeah, yeah right. Um Micah Johnson uh, is a second baseman. He's low, lowish upside probably, but uh, what he's, I think he's fast and he can play passable second. Maybe does that seem reasonable to say? Yeah, I mean, I think there's questions over whether his, his you know, he doesn't have a good glove and the bat's not amazing. So right. what, what is he if he's a, you know, mediocre defensive utility infielder? <laughs> right, uh, and then, uh, and then of course, uh, uh, Francellis or Frankie, I hear more often, Frankie Montas. Um, yeah. Is uh, he has a uh, a fantastic arm and or at least fantastic arm speed? Uh, I guess it uh, translating that into performances is the uh, that's the question for him. He throws strikes occasionally. Right. Um, so I don't know. That, so what? Now the White Sox have a third baseman, which is uh, I mean they've technically had a third baseman for, for probably for every year they've played in the in the majors, but they haven't had uh, an above replacement level one for a while. I feel like. Well, they had Brett Laurie, who they just traded for. Now Laurie's going to move to second base. So I think you almost look at it and say, like, Todd Frazier is their new second baseman. He's not actually going to play there, but that's the position on the field that they filled by making this trade because Laurie probably would have played third base otherwise. So, um, you know, could they have found a second baseman with as much potential as Todd Frazier? Probably not. Like, I think for the White Sox, I'm still not convinced that they're a really good team, but it's hard not to like this deal from their perspective. Like, they gave up, <coughs> uh, you know, a good arm who might end up as a reliever, or a lot of people think will end up as a reliever. Uh, they gave up a, uh, you know, fourth outfielder with some interesting tools, but a guy with significant contact problems. That's Trace Thompson. Uh, I Trace think. Thompson, right. Yeah. And then they gave up a utility infielder um, for two years of a, you know, borderline all-star third baseman. <laughs> you know, that's a that's a nice trade for the White Sox. And how many wins is it requ- does one needing now to uh... – <coughs> Maybe you know to to win either to win the AL Central or at least to uh, make a good run at the at the wild card. Well, I think it depends on what you think about Royals. I mean, as August Fagerstrom wrote on the site today, um, the projections once again don't think the Royals are very good, and uh, haven't thought the Royals were very good the last couple of years when they went the World Series twice in a row. Uh, so if you look at the Royals roster and think like, oh, they lost Johnny Cueto and Alex Gordon and Ben Zobrist, and um, you know. Had some guys probably have the best year of their career, like Lorenzo Cain, probably not going to sustain a six-war pace going forward. He's a very good player, but probably not a six-win player. Um, then you can look at this and be like, look, their rotation's not that good. Um, their bullpen's going to be weaker. 
uh, you know, because they lost Ryan Madsen, Greg Holland had Tommy John surgery. Like, you know, it's, this is, this Royals team doesn't look as good as the last few Royals teams. But on the other hand, uh, a lot of people are just like, wow, the projections are stupid and the Royals break them. If you take that view, then maybe the White Sox aren't that close to the division. But I think I'm, you know, I trust the projections guy for the most part. And I think like the AL Central is pretty wide open. Okay. The, you know, not, not the AL Central. I mean, you mentioned the, the weaknesses, uh, for that Royals team. Uh, today, uh, a couple uh, posts at the site, uh, both the Zips projections for the for the Baltimore Orioles, and also a post by Matthew Corey looking for a home for Chris Davis. Uh, they both call attention to the fact that heading into the season, at least the, the the current iteration of the club of these Orioles is not particularly strong. Of course, yeah. one notes simultaneous to that, as has also been the case for the Royals in recent years, uh, the projections tend not to be uh, particularly complimentary or uh, optimistic for the Orioles generally and they've and they've uh th- it hasn't really bothered them too much although they were a 500 team this past year. Yeah, I mean the two of the last four seasons they beat their projections and beat their kind of uh you know true talent metrics like base runs uh pretty handily and uh Buck Showalter got a lot of praise for you know being the kind of manager who can you know squeeze uh blood out of a turnip. Uh, but last year, uh, his turnup was dry and the Orioles just weren't very good. Yeah. And, uh, like, based on their roster, uh, when you take, uh, potentially Chris Davis and Wei Yin Chen and, uh, you know, some of the better, their better players away and you replace them with almost nothing from a barren farm system, it's hard to see how the Orioles are going to be a very good team next year. Uh, I think, you know, I wouldn't rule it out. Maybe they'll make some really good January and February moves and find some more Steve Pierce-like players and, you know, uh, kind of turn, cast-offs into quality role players like they have a history of doing. Uh, but right now, I think on paper, the Orioles look like one of the worst teams in baseball. Well, that, that's interesting. You mentioned because, um, you know, when I'm doing these uh, the Zips posts, you look around, you know, not just at what the, the Fangraphs authors have have arrived at in terms of the depth chart for, for the club, but also look at a couple of different other uh, resources. And there's, you know, usually there's agreement, right? Well, who's the team's, you know, like so for the Orioles, it's pretty obvious Adam Jones is going to play center field. Well, most clubs, it's pretty obvious who's going to play every position or maybe yeah. there's going to be a platoon. There's a lot of indecision uh, with regard to this Orioles team because you yeah. have uh, in right field, I mean, maybe LJ Hose. Well, who has what? Like the the right field and DH projections, <laughs> I think, on your depth chart. Negative one projections. Yeah, in right. In terms of war, that's not so good. No, it's not good. And I mean, I mean but Jimmy Paredes is not necessarily the name you what you're banking for DH, right? For any team. Yeah, uh, right. If you're starting LJ Hose and Jimmy Paredes in 2016, you're not trying to win. Right. And Paredes seems like a strange. Doesn't he actually have some defense? I feel like he was a. Um, I feel like at one point the Astros were playing him at shortstop a little bit. Yeah, he was a, an infielder who doesn't field at all. I mean, this is why Steve Pierce played second base last year. There were actually days where Pierce, who's traditionally a first baseman who's dabbled in the corner outfield, played second, while Paredes, who's a middle infielder through the minor leagues, DH'd uh, because they hate Paredes' glove that much. Uh, but he had like a, kind of an interesting power surge for like a month where he hit for a bunch of power out of nowhere, mm-hmm. and then it kind of went away. Um, so Paredes is like a, uh, you know, a little bit of an upside play, except for the fact that he can't play the field, uh, and he's only hit well for like a very short period of time. So not a guy you want in your starting line. Right. Yeah. There's just a, there's a lot of, uh, there are a lot of gaps there, which is, um, but I yeah, guess I mean, like, you know, I think this is the reflection of like the Orioles have like what, seven or eight players at free agency, right? Like, I mean, right. when you like lose large swaths of your team, uh, you know, I mean, the nice thing is like if, if Davis leaves and Chen leaves, like this is, you know, they'll have money to spend because those guys cost money last year. 
but they'll have less money to spend than the value they got from those players. And so maybe they lose Davis and Chen and Pierce and they get, you know, one Justin Upton or one Alex Gordon or something. Uh, that'll help, but it won't help enough probably. Matthew Corey's thinking that probably the most likely destination for Chris Davis is Baltimore again. Is that yeah, I mean, I think that's true. Like, in talking to people in the game, it sounds like Peter Angelos is quite interested in keeping Davis, uh, and Angelos is in, you know, he's in control of the purse strings. He can do whatever he wants. Uh, and Scott Boris historically has done a good job of manipulating overly involved owners into spending wildly on players they shouldn't be interested in. Um, so I think, you know, when you look around and see, like, there's not really any other teams in the market for expensive first basemen, uh, Boris is probably circling Peter Angelos and trying to figure out how to get, you know, money out of him rather than trying to convince some other team, uh, to, to kind of weigh in and, and try and help bid, uh, the Orioles for Davis. Cause it seems like right now the, the Orioles are the only team all that interested. All right. Right. Well, giant slugger entering his thirties or already <laughs> with, a, with a huge strikeout rate. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's just you know, lots of reasons to think this won't go very well. Yeah. What color, if there were flags surrounding Chris Davis, what color do you suppose they would be? Probably like the one that signified the bubonic plague. <laughs> what color was that one? I don't know, black and white maybe. Did they I have like flags? There was like, yeah, there was like like ships when they had like you know six soldiers on board. They had to like fly flags that were like, hey, look, we have herpes or you know whatever. You know, there is occasionally there's nostalgia for the past, but that's not part of the past for which anyone should have nostalgia. That sounds terrible. What, just, like, just, just sailing around on on ships with the plague. <laughs> yeah, well, at least they were telling each other, like, hey, you know, don't come on my, my ship, you'll get the plague. Yeah, Nowadays, people, like, walk around with all kinds of diseases and they don't tell you. That's a good point. We had to go to Nashville and shake hands with all kinds of diseased people with no warning. In that biodome. What is it, hey, when uh, when people are on a plane and they're wearing a surgical mask, is uh-huh. that because they're protecting themselves or they're protecting you? Uh, theoretically, you. Uh, I think generally, uh, when I got released from the hospital after having chemotherapy, I was basically required to wear, it wasn't a surgical mask, it was like a little more intensive, like, breathing apparatus thing, mm-hmm. uh, in order to, like, filter out the air because I wasn't allowed to, um, uh, get sick because I didn't have an immune system. Oh, yeah. So that one was definitely for protection for me, but I think generally when you see people just, like, the surgical masks, that means, like, they have a cold or something and they're trying not to sneeze on, you know, your food. Oh, that's nice of them. Yeah, theoretically. All right. I mean, in practice, I would argue, too. What's your, what's your argument against in practice? Uh, well, they might not actually care about you. They might just be a germaphobe. No, yeah, there's that, too. All right, Cameron, you've uh, fulfilled your obligation. That seemed like a good way to end this, yeah. Yeah, all right. Uh, thank you, Dave Cameron. You're welcome. All right, that has been Dave Cameron, managing editor of uh, Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Stooley. This has been Fangraphs Audio. <laughs>